Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Welcome to today's episode, Kreskin's Amazing Life. Our guest today is known worldwide as the Amazing Kreskin. He is a thought reader or mentalist who for six decades has wowed crowds with his gift of mind reading. And today, he'll be sharing stories about his family roots, life, career, and his amazing gift. I'd like to now welcome Kreskin to our show. Welcome, Kreskin. Well, I'll tell you, James, it's great to talk to you. Uh, by the way, I just in hearing the tone of his voice, since he dare not edit this out, sometime if I'm, if I'm on with you in person, or in a public event in person, I, I dare not read your thoughts in public. No, I'm only joking, James. Just joking. <laughs> you know, you know. I I say this more and more, and of course, it's more appropriate now. If we can't laugh at ourselves in our culture today, we're in gigantic trouble. And and I can remember as a kid here in Colon, New Jersey, across the street was the Park Theater, which I for me to get to my uh, the apartment we I grew up in to the park there that took about uh, 60 seconds or, or two minutes. And on Saturdays, I would go, you know, for 15 cents to get to see two fully movies. Usually one was a Western and the other was a, other kind of stories. And then, of course, the cartoons, which we loved. And there was always the news. And here, there I see a Second World War. I'm a little kid, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, sitting there. You can tell he's laughing. He's got his and hitting his knees and his mouth. So, and it's Bob Hope next to him who's mocking everything in sight because, of course, humor is one of the great forces and supports when a culture is in trouble or in danger. So we can't stop. Thank you for that. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about, you talked about your early years. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you were born, and where does your family come from? Well, I, the rumors uh, are that I was born in outer space on another planet. That's really not true. I was born in Montclair, New Jersey, but I, I grew up all my life in the uh, Caldwells. I lived in, in Caldwell and then uh, years ago moved to West Caldwell and then the past 38 years live in North Caldwell, about four blocks from where I grew up. So I spent most of my uh, all my life here. My father's side of the family is from uh, Poland. In fact, many of them settled in, uh, my father was, was born in the United States, was from Poland, the family is, and they settled in Bethlehem, Allentown area of Pennsylvania, which I have tremendous, wonderful memories of visiting and what have you. I once had in Bethlehem and Allentown about 84 relatives, so you can set, you can see that we dominated the political picture. No, we didn't. And then <laughs> then uh, my my mother's side of the family are from uh, were from Sicily, my grandmother and grandfather. And uh, she was a chef for royalty. So you can imagine here on Roseland Avenue, uh, when I would walk over there from my house or after church, and maybe 16 of us sitting around the table, and you can imagine the meals we had. Of course, my favorite dish still remains the spaghetti with meat sauce. And my second favorite dish is spaghetti with meat sauce, but uh, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful meals. And, and they, they, they didn't speak much English. I love them dearly. It was a wonderful culture uh, uh, there on Roseland Avenue, so mainly uh, on Roseland Avenue were mainly uh, Italian people and black people, and we got very close. All of us got to know each other well. Because, you know that was the day. It was a rare. You don't see it today because uh, porches are no longer important in people's lives. And my grandparents lived on Roseland Avenue, so when you walk down, 
my, my grandfather built the house with his own hands and because he was in the construction field. He came here first to the United States and settled and became an American citizen. And very often they did that before they brought their wives over because the husbands wanted to make sure that they were settled and had a, a job and what have you. It was a great experience. And then the great thing about it was years ago, people sat outside because they didn't have air conditioning inside their homes. In the evenings, they sat outside and the various neighbors visited and all the, the wonderful experiences I had. And if Johnny or Jimmy got out of sight and went too far down the road, so and so was sitting outside would say, you go back or I'm going to call your mommy or daddy, get back in the house. Everybody saw each other. While today you don't have one of the reasons people have less friends than they had years ago and no question less friends is that they're not communicating as much. They're doing it through a device called the you know cell phone and what have you and that is crippling. I've written 22 books and the 22 books I've written, one of them three years ago, I went into great length on how the modern communications is exciting and thrilling and what have you and could be the beginning of the breakdown of modern society. And that's exactly what's happening. We don't hear each other anymore. We don't listen because I was just at a restaurant here in New Jersey a couple months ago and I talked to some TV producers and was at a table and I mentioned this and I say, Creston, we should have a camera right now. Look around. There were a number of college-age students and younger students, like some had four or six at a table, but they weren't conversing. They had cell phones to their ears. So we're used to not hearing what each other say and we're used to quick answers. It's a different culture today. It's kind of dramatic. I, th I think you're right. And I think just the picture that you're painting of the area where you grew up and having family, both actually biological family as well as neighbor family, all there to support you and watch after you must have been a wonderful experience. But I did want to say one quick thing. You mentioned about your Polish side of the family from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I went to school out there. And Are I, you kidding me? I, I, I'm oh not my. kidding you. I went to school oh. at Moravian College. Oh, my God. My family lived a few blocks from Moravian because we used to walk the city all the time, you know. Isn't that something? Yes. Well, what did you major in? I majored in history. Oh, my goodness. And back in the 70s when I was there, you came to Moravian College. Yes. Well, let me tell you a background story. Early in my career, when I wasn't well known and what have you, uh, I would come into Bethlehem and do shows at private homes, private events, and Polish clubs uh, that were in the area. And I had wonderful audiences through the years. So I have, a, I have a love affair. I have a tremendous love affair with Pennsylvania. It's a wonderful state. That is so exciting to hear because that the city in my early career was very important in my work because they were very supportive of me. And I, you saw me there and I performed many, many shows in the area. I, by the way, I love Polish jokes. It's hard to tell them on the phone because you need sometimes visual things. <laughs> and, and I care about my family because they often live Polish humor. We, we laugh at each other all the time. And, and that, thank God we haven't lost that. But that is neat. How did you come to go to school in Pennsylvania? Well, what happened was when I was in high school, and I happened to go to James Caldwell High School. So I, yes, so did I. Yep, I, I, high school. I went to Grover Cleveland High School, yeah. Yep, and they had a recruiter come. There were some recruiters who came in, and 
they told us about this school. And I was looking for mm-hmm. a school that was far enough away where I could be away from home and at the same time have a small campus where it'd be friendlier. And then I saw that it was founded, the college was founded, I think, in 1742, if I'm not wrong. And it's a couple of yeah, yeah, a couple it, of years old. One of the oldest colleges in the country, and I saw that. Of course, that fascinated me, and I took a tour there. And it was the old campus, which is on the south side of the town, down by the river. Yeah, and yeah. it was so charming. They had buildings that were used as a hospital during the Revolutionary War. There was an old yes. cemetery uh-huh. there. There's the Moravian Church where they do the Christmas vespers. They deck the whole town up with lights at christmas time and they put the big oh, that star Moravian church is neat. yeah it's beautiful it's, a, it's got a big star they put up on the mountain up by i guess it's by lehigh and kind of a great experience so i ended up going there oh graduated in 1980 and i had a pretty good experience there and i loved it when i went to see your show i was just totally blown away oh. by your show <laughs> i couldn't believe i went in very skeptical you know and so good memories from 40 40 years ago. Well, it's it a small world. And of course, then the Bethlehem Steel was a major part of the area. And, you know, they're making a comeback again. But when the Bethlehem Steel left, it was kind of sad because my uncles worked for the Bethlehem Steel in different mm-hmm. job branches. And it was, it was a very important part of Bethlehem and Allentown. And of course, then there was Eastern Pennsylvania, uh, which I had a personal manager there for almost 20 years. So I got to know the area very, very well. But uh, it is true, people communicated more and, and socialized more. One of the sad things is that uh, one one thing that was part of our lives is uh, that we sat around as kids around the kitchen table and had uh, dinner with our family and so forth. And even Winston Churchill, one of the, one of the greatest historians of, of all time, I revere him. And if his people had only paid attention to his writings earlier, they may not have been so shocked on what happened with Hitler in spite of Chamberlain coming through and saying, holding up a note and saying he got a letter from Hitler that Hitler would not attack and what have you. But as, even as the bombs were falling over London every night, uh, Churchill made sure once a week or once or twice a week uh, there would be dinner with his family sitting around the table because he felt that that factor was a very important cohesive part of the growth of children and the continuation of a family itself. And we don't have that philosophy as much today because people are usually busy, but it's a shame because we've lost some of the earmarks of what makes family and the society a, a secure and meaningful place, you know? Yes, you've talked about the bombing of London. My mother was living in London. She was in the Royal Air Force. and Your mother was in the Royal Air Force? She was, and she was living in... Uh, London while the Blitz was taking place when she was younger. And then when she enlisted, she was still stationed near London. So then they were under attack by V1 and V2 rockets. But she did tell me that there was also a lot of camaraderie down in the, they called them the tubes, which was the subway. And people used to go there to shield themselves from the bombing. But there was a sense of community, people all together. They were all in it together. Oh, yes. A sense of family, almost. Did your mother, your mother was in planes much of the time, was she? No, my mother was more of a clerical type of a position in the Air Force. So she was taking some of the jobs, I think, that maybe previously belonged to some of the men who had been deployed to France. And 
elsewhere during World War II, but she spent a lot of the time in or near London, which is where, of course, a lot of the action was at as far as the bombing. Yes. Yes. I don't know if your mother ever told you this, but years ago, many people that worked during the Second World War in the Air Force area, a number of them recounted the story to me. So Hitler decided, no, we're not going to because the Air Force itself is extremely sizable. However, I talked to some of the pilots who flew over Germany and dropped bombs and came back. And when they returned to London, whatever the airport was, out flew a number of people. And when the pilot got out of the plane, the people carried the pilot in their arms into the airport and let him rest there before he got into the plane and flew out again sometimes four and five times in one day. So Hitler was deceived into thinking it was a large air force, and it was not. Wow. There's such bravery that was displayed. It's amazing. I did want to ask Incredible. you another question. Uh, one more question about your family. When you sat around the table with your Italian grandparents, and you mentioned that they didn't speak English too well, were you able to communicate uh, in Italian, or how did that work? I understood. No, I didn't speak Italian that well, no. But I understood what they were saying. You have to understand that speaking another language was a great tool for mom and dad and aunts and uncles because they could say things they didn't want you to know about. It. But no, I did. I we all understood because the rest of the family, the, the three daughters and the two the sons, everybody all spoke English and what have you. So it was not a problem. But they didn't speak that much, but still we communicated with great love and great affection between us all. I was very close to my Polish family, but my grandmother did not speak English at all, any kinds of words, so it was more difficult, but the rest of the family translated and what have you. And by the way, the original name, Kresge, I never found out how it took place. We couldn't figure it out. It turns out this gentleman came and was selling to my grandmother, evidently, life insurance or something like that. Some of the family was there, and he would talk to her, and he was asking her, her name, and she said, Gorchitsa, which is a Polish name, meaning mustard seed. And he kept asking, Gorchitsa, and he wrote down Kresge, K-R-E-S-G-E. So he created a new family name, which I, you know, made Kresge, but it was Kresge. And as I understand, going through Ellis Island, it was very, very common for uh, the people signing people into the United States to change the name and anglicize it more. That was not an unusual thing that took place. Oh, that was very common. I know there's sometimes a lot of difficulty people tracing their family names back to Europe or other areas yeah. because mm -hmm. it may not look at all like what it really was because the clerk working at Ellis Island just didn't spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out what the person was saying, <laughs> frankly, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. we survived, and there was a great cohesiveness. There was a great patriotism and a sense of support. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Do you have any specific memories of something from your childhood that really stands out, some tradition or something specific that happened that was very memorable as a child? Well, I have, a, of course, growing up in coal, my school, uh, Lincoln School, and then I grew up in high school and what have you, of course, are very very important to me. The great thing, and I uh, feel sorry for students today because they lost that feature. The great thing is where I lived in Caldwell, the Lincoln School was about a mile from my house, and the Grover Cleveland High School was a mile from my house. And we did something which is going to surprise people. We walked to school, walked to school every damn day, even when there was 
heavy snow weather. And when I traveled in the Scandinavian countries and what have you, the people tell me, Christian, we do it all the time. We don't take buses. I mean, this is a, a paralyzing situation or it's many miles away. We walk because along the way you meet your friends, you communicate with them, and you have that great experience of exercising and what have you. And my father, every day as I can remember, unless he was ill or had some previous uh, engagements that he had to attend to, would walk the length of the town. And my mother, when she went shopping, usually walked because she didn't drive a car. My father drove a car and what have you. In school, as far as school is concerned, Lincoln School was very special for me because I knew what I wanted to do when I was a kid because my mother, I, I didn't read, of course, I was five years old, but my mother would read comic books to me and I'd have hundreds of them, original comics, and one comic she read to me inspired me. It was called Mandrake the Magician. Mm. And Mandrake was a tremendous feature in the daily comics in the United States. And uh, he wasn't a magician. He had hypnotic abilities and telepathic abilities, and he fought crime. So when I would play cops and robbers outdoors with my friends, I didn't play a cop. I played Mandrake. And, and then in, uh, in grade school, in third grade, Miss Curtis said to us, well, it's raining outside. I'm not going to have you go out and play. I'm going to teach you a game. So she sent Jane Hamilton into the hallway, and uh, we were third graders, and we hit a bean bag in someone's desk, a little cloth bag, and Miss Curtis called Jane back in and said, Jane, walk around the classroom. If you're getting near where they hit it, they'll say you're getting warm. If you're not near, you're getting cold. It's an old game called hot and cold, which I never knew about. So she, when she got near the desk that it was in, when the students were sitting at them, we were also getting hot, hot, and she found it at the desk. And I was, I wanted to play, and I was obsessed with it. So I'm walking home. When I got home, my brother's a couple of years younger, and I said, let's go over to Grandma's house, Grandma and Grandpa's house, my Italian family. And they, they lived about seven, eight minutes away. So I walked over there, and I said, you know, go upstairs. Here's a penny or a nickel, whatever it was. Hide, hide this in Grandma's house. They built the whole house, and downstairs, it was a store. They rented it out. That's the way they made ends meet. And so he calls me. He had hidden it. And I come up the steps to the second floor and walk into this old-fashioned kitchen, the pot belly stove. My grandmother's sitting there not knowing what we're playing. And I walk around the kitchen, and I end up walking into my uncle's bedroom. He's at work. Go up to this old chair and climb up on the chair and find myself reaching behind a curtain rod. And lo and behold, I'm touching the penny. And then when I came back in the kitchen, it dawned on me. I forgot to tell my brother to talk to me. He never said a word. He's just standing there wondering what the hell I'm doing, what's going on. And, of course, got around the family. I'm sure one of the rumors was that I uh, uh, had the evil eye or what have you because it's an Italian family. But anyway, so I started, uh, and I had my family uh, at private parties hide an item or an object and what have you and proceeded to locate it. And then in Fourth and sixth grade, Miss Galloway was one of those wonderful, I had great teachers, but uh, she was meaningful to me. And she would set aside on Friday show and tell about 40 minutes for me to perform with my classmates. I remember in one performance, I said, all of you think of a movie. So I pointed to Judy Dunn or Tom Thompson who sat next to her in the back of the classroom. I said, are you thinking, you're not thinking of a movie you just saw recently, are you? She says, no. Talking to her, I said, you know, this was this was months ago at the holidays, and I named the movie, and turned out I had successfully perceived a movie she was thinking of. So Miss Galloway, by then I'm already performing private performances and local performances, sixth grade, and, and Miss Galloway 
was so enchanted with what I, whatever I wrote. I did not know this until years later because when I finished grade school, I went to junior high and then high school. In high school, ninth grade, I did a full evening, two-hour concert to raise months for runs for the school. And it was a one-man show, and it ran over two hours, and it was by myself uh, performing. So I was already performing uh, what became a feature in a few years after that, and it's been written about all over the world. My signature is in most of my performances, I turn my check over to a committee from the audience whom I've never met before, people I don't know, four or five people. And I'm escorted from the theater by one or two people, and the rest of the committee hides my check anywhere within the theater. Or if it's an outdoor fair, like a state fair, where there's maybe 10,000 people, they usually have a, a truck next to the stage, and I'm escorted into the truck and guarded by some of the committee. The windows are closed off, so I can't see what's going on. So when I come back to the stage, I don't ask any questions. I simply admonish one or two of the committee to concentrate on what they've done. And if I don't find my fee, literally physically find it, I don't ask any questions, I have to find it, and I forfeit it, and the money goes to the company or the business or the group that booked me, and I don't get paid. People say, have I ever failed? And yes, I have. I failed 11 times. Now, that's not much out of four or 5,000 times, but some of the incidents have been very dramatic in New Zealand, one of my favorite places in the world I've worked in. I remember the second night at the theater, I failed, and the money was turned over to a children's hospital. Uh, there was a press conference held the next day, and over 100 reporters there, because the story became an international story. I had failed to find my check, and I lost in one night $51,000. Oh. So the test is a very legitimate one. A movie's being written, and I come into this gymnasium, because I've done over a 1,000 university shows in this country and in, in Canada. Came in the gymnasium and walked up to uh, an elderly gentleman. It was crowded with a couple thousand people. And I said, would you open your mouth? And I felt like a jackass. There was no check. And I walked away. I said, I'm sorry. Please sit down. I walked away from him, walked to the stage. I thought, what a stupid thing to do. So I picked another person on the committee and said, would you concentrate in your mind, step by step, how I'm to find this? I'm walking through the audience, walking around, and I stop in front of the same gentleman. And I said, if I embarrass you, just sit down and we'll end the test here. Would you stand up? He does. I said, if I embarrass you, just sit down and the test ends and I lost my feet. I said, would you open your mouth? He does. I said, does this have to do with the roof of your mouth? He reached in his mouth, took out his upper plate and handed me my check. Oh. So the <laughs> stories have been dramatic. They're like adventure stories through the years. College students have been diabolical. <laughs> oh, I bet, you, I bet that check. You probably handed it to somebody else to deposit for you, though. <laughs> it was underneath his, oh, his right. bridge. <laughs> well, I, yeah, but I found it, thank God. That's so my career has been like an adventure. I mean, the fact that I have the airline industry announced two years ago, I've flown a little over three and one half million miles, and I'm told that there's very, uh, United Airlines tells me, they said, we have pilots. The pilots have not flown that many miles. They're always kidding me because the traveling I've done for my career. Oh, that's incredible. I did want to ask you, Kreskin, could you explain exactly what your gift is and what it's not? Well, I'm, I don't tell give people advice. I'm not a psychic that tells people about their future, what have you. I'm a, a thought reader in the sense that the person has to concentrate on what they're thinking of. They have to capsulize it in their mind 
and I can usually piece it together if they're concentrating. And I don't see this all the time when I'm around people. It's a mood and empathy that enables me to kind of do dramatic things. And I can influence people's behavior by causing them to respond to things that I've decided upon that I've not even shown them. But my work deals with people's concentration. Yes, I have predicted some elections through the years, but that's because of my audiences. I'll often say, I'm not going to ask you who you're going to vote for, but then I'll get right in on there. I'll get a sense of what the majority of them are thinking about. And usually at the end of a couple of years uh, or a year or so, I have a feeling about what's going on there. But I'm not a fortune teller. I don't guide people's lives. But my work is exciting because it deals with the mind and how we think. And I've had some very, very dramatic experiences through the years. A lot of medical groups I perform for get such a kick out of it because the feeling is there's more about the mind that's going on that we don't fully understand. We really don't. My degrees in psychology, and I've never met more whacked out people in the field of psychiatry. But that's nothing. <laughs> I don't mean that disparagingly. It's just that that's one of the. Freud knew that when he was practicing uh, psychoanalysis and what have you, that a lot of people attracted had emotional difficulties. But I've, I've somehow survived, and my psychiatrist only sees me four times a week. I don't have a psychiatrist. No, no. I'm joking. <laughs> now, I want to talk a little bit about your book. The book is called The Adventures of the Amazing Kreskin, and I'm really excited about this book. I've written, as I said, 22 books. But this one is special, and people are picking it up because I collaborated. Not that somebody else wrote the book, no. But an illustrator, a comic illustrator who's very famous, Howie Noel, did the drawings. And what's refreshing about the book is there's cartoons in it, dramatizing certain periods of my career. So anyone who wants to, looking into what water is, just go to www.creskinbook.com. They can get the book easily. But I, I feel like uh, people tell me, families tell me they sit with their kids and go through the book because there's some very dramatic scenes. What I've spoken very little about until recent years is that I feel we all have to give something back for our success. And I've done it by working with law enforcement. And I've worked on, as of a month, two months ago, 86 crime cases in my life. Not that I've solved all of them. No, I've maybe about a third I've been helpful for. And some are extremely dramatic, including, you know, a case in which I was almost murdered along with the other victim. But they're they're dramatic stories. So my career has really been an adventure. It certainly has. And I have the book and I have read the book and it is absolutely wonderful. And there was something, two things I want to mention is that I noticed in the book that you make it a big point how important reading is. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, the reason is this. And I read, um, my library is over 8,000 books, and I'm constantly reviewing books because people will send me a book and ask me, could I give them a quote on it, what have you, and sometimes they use it in advertising or maybe in a blurb and cover, what have you. I enjoy reading, but the important thing about reading is it enables us to stop the world and get off and use our own intelligence, our own thinking to go over thoughts, words, ideas, which forces us not uncomfortably, when we finish the book or a chapter, to reflect upon what we've just done. And I read four newspapers a day, even though I'm traveling a lot of the time. People don't realize how important reading is. If you read a newspaper, you read about something you never thought you'd be interested in. You see a topic there. I never thought of that. Let me read this. Because your mind, is ca- your attention is causing you to look at areas that you hadn't planned to see, and it causes you to awaken a larger picture. And that's one of the reasons people doing research and people in the news have newspapers in front of them. 
Wow, that's terrific. I did want to, if it's okay, I'd like to read your dedication to this book because I think it speaks volumes about you, Kreskin. It says, to those of you who already know or have strong feelings beyond the noise, mayhem, violence, and riots in today's culture, it is that we have an inner potential gift to quietly tune in on the feelings and emotions of others, revealing the power of empathy. Can you tell us a little bit about that dedication? And I'd like you to roll into what do you want your legacy to be? Well, the, the bottom line is I had a, one of my heroes when I was a kid was the most powerful person in the history of broadcasting. The man's name was Arthur Godfrey. Mm. And Arthur Godfrey changed the history of broadcasting because he talked to people as if he was talking to them personally and what have you. And he made people feel like he understood how they felt. It was raining outside, the mood and what have you. So the picture of broadcasting changed with, with his entry because in the early days of broadcasting, if you appeared on a, a network show, you had to dress in a tuxedo or an evening gown, even though it was, there was no television. It was all black and white. So it was ladies and gentlemen. But Godfrey changed it to, you know, I know you're home by yourself because you're cleaning the house because your husband's working right now and what have you. And they just psychologists pick the word that's part of the psychological dialogue to describe God because it was a phenomena. They pick the word empathy. And empathy is the ability to feel the way someone else feels. Mm. And the best example I can give you is we can learn from the American Indian. And I remember hearing this as a kid. The American Indian said, if you want to understand someone else, walk in their shoes before you judge them. That's a very old piece of advice. You walk in someone's shoes before you judge. And we're not doing that today. Mm. We're just judging someone because of something they said on TV or a remark or a political part they're with, which is really not the maturity of the spirit that human beings have. That's why it's a very key factor. Oh, thank you. And then finally, what do you want your legacy to be, Kreskin? That's interesting because I, I would like people to really now more than ever before, I want to be, a, I'm going to continue to give, aside from my entertainment, a feeling and an understanding that we communicate with each other, even when we're not speaking, when we're not talking, when we're with people and communicating with them. And one of the most important things we can do when we're with people is when we finish communication, sit in a damn room by yourself and reflect upon what you heard. People did that for years. They'd go into a kitchen and start nibbling on something. Because if you get used to doing this every day and you reflect upon the conversation and not busy yourself by putting a noise on and hearing the noise the rest of the day, you'll start to learn about people and the way they behave and think that you never thought about behaving before. Wow, thank you for that. And I really do appreciate your time today, Kreskin. It's been a wonderful interview. And the fact that you shared your story about your family, your family history, you, you brought us to, I almost smelled the spaghetti and meat sauce. <laughs> oh my God, you got me hungry already. Oh, I almost smelled oh, it. And, and what a wonderful story. And I just appreciate that. And uh, what's next for Kreskin? Well, the book is the key thing right now. And of course, the tours have all been postponed because of the scenario, what's yep. going on now. But people can look every Thursday, go on the internet, go to YouTube or what have you. They can look on my webpage to get information. And I have done now for a number of months and seen nationally I 10, 15 minutes piece uh, every Thursday at 8 o'clock. 
commenting on the different situations and different issues that are going on, and sometimes some humorous experiences, and all the times interviewing famous people. But I uh, want to keep on top of what's going on and, and still remain communicative. And it's called What's on My Mind. That's the title of the Thursday piece that's on the YouTube and the internet. It's called What's on My Mind. And people can go on my webpage, amazingcreskin.com, to find out what it's all about. Listen, James, we will uh, continue and keep in touch from time to time. So I won't say, uh, I won't say goodbye, but in the spirit of broadcasting, let's just say to be continued. Thank you, Kreskin. Thank you for your time and for sharing your story with all of us. And for all of our listeners, until next time, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.